Hi, uh, thanks very much, Jamie, for inviting me to talk about severe sepsis, which is my favourite subject, and uh, also is massive, so I'll try and squeeze it into uh, uh, half an hour. Uh, and uh, with the additional pressure of only being able to talk about stuff that's new in the last year, which uh, any of you who know much about severe sepsis will know there's not a lot. Also, thanks to Matt for giving away uh, the majority of uh, the point at the end of the talk. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, so I'm going to talk about what we, talk, what we mean when we talk about uh, what a septic patient looks like and uh, how we can uh, define it, just to try and focus our minds into um, uh, sepsis as a disease. Uh, a bit of a refresher about the pathophysiology and uh, to get to grips with what our possible therapeutic interventions can be about the mortality, how do you do if you have sepsis, who gets sepsis, how common is it, and then a bit about our guidelines for management. So before the 1990s, there was a kind of uh, uh, confusion about what a septic patient was. Trials reputed people with septicemia, which was a very heterogeneous group. There were people who had a bit of infection and a fever being put in trials up against people with full-on septic shock. And it's not surprising that the uh, <coughs> epidemiological studies came up with slightly bizarre outcomes and things which weren't um, necessarily um, uh, expandable uh, to, uh, uh, and translatable to a lot of the patients that we see. So in uh, 1991, there was a consensus conference, an intensivist love consensus conferences. They all sit around and discuss things at a very high level um, between these two American groups. And they, uh, what, what they tried to do was describe what, is it, what a person with infection could look like. And they, reigned, they, they described a disease spectrum from infection right down to septic shock. Um, and generally speaking, if you have infection um, with the inflammatory response, which is the uh, systemic inflammatory response syndrome, then you're septic. Uh, if, you have severe, if you have sepsis and an organ dysfunction, that might just be hypotension, then you have severe sepsis. And if you are uh, uh, fluid resuscitated and you're still hypotensive, uh, then you have septic shock. And this is a disease continuum, and it won't surprise you to know that the outcomes are very different depending on uh, how severe your disease is. Ten years later, another consensus conference, this time the Americans invited the Europeans uh, and the Surgical Infection Society, and they revisited the definitions pri primarily because they recognised that the SERS criteria were very, very sensitive and fairly non-specific. So, for example, over New Year I had flu, I had an infection, I had a fever, and uh, I had uh, tachycardia, but I wasn't septic. Um, but it, it, uh, if you were ob objective about it, you might have said that I had SERS and therefore sepsis and could have recruited me into a trial. So uh, at this consensus conference, they introduced the concept of PIRO, which is really looking at how the host responds to a septic insult and really trying to uh, make us realise that it's not just about the trigger, it's about how the host response and sepsis and where we can intervene in sepsis to change outcome is much more about uh, trying to uh, deal with the host response uh, once you've dealt with the trigger. And in describing uh, uh, sepsis, they, that this concept is actually a scoring system, rather like Apache 2. It doesn't tell you anything about each individual's risk of dying or each individual's uh, outcome, but it does give you an idea about global outcomes um, and uh, mortality data. And it recognised that if you were elderly and you had uh, hematological failure and liver failure, your chances of getting out of a septic episode were less than if you were young and fit and uh, had a bit of a soft tissue infection. So just a little bit of a revision about the pathophysiology of sepsis. Um, the septic insult, be it uh, usually bacterial, but sometimes viral or fungal, 
leads to a, a cacophony of uh, inflammatory uh, reactions. Usually it's the uh, endotoxin or um, exotoxin <coughs> from a bacterial cell wall, which is recognized by um, toll-like receptors on the T cells. So there's, a, there's the uh, cell-specific type response, and uh, the cell-mediated response leads to um, a release of inflammatory cytokines like interleukins, tumor necrosis factor, um, etc. And this causes activation and um, uh, neutrophil activation and macrophage activation with the resultant release of more cytokines. At the same time, there's activity uh, of the nitric oxide uh, system and this causes capillary leak and vasodilation. And we would all recognize a patient who uh, was vasodilated with septic and that's what we kind of discuss as our classic patient. At the same time, this septic trigger is causing activation of uh, uh, complement pathways and also the coagulation uh, cascade. Um, and you can see here these are red <coughs> bars. Uh, I've taken this slide from uh, from an intensive care um, slide about possible ways of intervening uh, with the host response. And these red bars are where things like activated protein C <coughs> are likely to work. But in uh, activating the coagulation cascade, you get ultimately formation of microthrombi, and they sit and lodge in the microcirculation, therefore worsening uh, tissue um, oxygen delivery. So the end result of this is that you get vasodilation, so you get shunting of blood away from um, uh, capillary beds that it should be going to. In addition, you get capillary leak because of the um, uh, well, because of the uh, cytokine direct cytokine reaction on the endothelium. And you get edema, so tissue edema, so the diffusion uh, di distance for oxygen to get to the mitochondria goes up and makes it more difficult. And you get microvascular thrombosis. And altogether, these lead to tissue hypoxia. And when you get tissue hypoxia, you then get inflammatory uh, uh, cytokine release. And so this becomes a bit of a vicious cycle with more of this causing more of this and more of this. And so it goes round. And we know that it's the... Uh, tissue hypoxia and the inflammatory mediators which cause the organ dysfunction. If you take um, uh, laboratory animals and you infuse the inflammatory soup in the absence of infection, so cytokines and tumor necrosis factor, etc., you will induce organ dysfunction. Um, and so we know that um, trying to uh, halt the um, inflammatory process um, is very, very important in trying to reduce uh, incidence of multi-organ dysfunction and failure. Luckily, uh, we have the inflammatory compensatory inflammatory response syndrome also going on in all of us, and that's there to try and dampen all of this down. Some people who are genetically modified in that way, it can be uh, over-damping and can actually render you a little bit immunosuppressed. But in the majority of us, it's there to try and uh, keep all of this in check. So just to summarize a little bit about the pathophysiology, because it's interesting and because uh, it, it, it helps us to understand about what we can actually do for sepsis. Sepsis states represent a balance between pro- and anti-inflammatory responses. And we're genetically determined. And we heard Professor Montgomery yesterday telling us about uh, patients who are more likely to die of sepsis. So if your mother has died of a septic or an infective cause, you're more likely to do so. And that's because of uh, genetic susceptibility. And there are homozygotes, for, for example, tumor necrosis factor, who have a much higher mortality when uh, exposed to a septic stimulus. Um, and in the Surviving Sepsis Campaign guidelines uh, just published, they open with this. 
sepsis is a, a systemic host response to an infection. So they're, put, they're really trying to make us understand that it's not about the trigger, it's about the host response. So a little bit about how common sepsis is and what causes it and what can you expect if you have a bout of it. Well, uh, the majority of causes of, non, of sepsis are non-surgical. Up to 70% are pulmonary, uh, community-acquired and hospital-acquired pneumonias. Um, the other in this group are um, things like meningococcal sepsis and uh, soft tissue infections. Oops. Um, so uh, the incidence of sepsis in both the US and the UK, and these are studies which are now uh, 10 years plus old, is approximately, uh, these are people who are admitted to ICU with, sepsis, with severe sepsis. One per thousand population per year. So Dereford serves uh, half a million people population. So about 500 patients per year should be admitted to our ICU with severe sepsis. And so that's uh, over one a day. And those of you who are involved in trying to recruit for promise will realise uh, that the, 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 the actually trying to get patients into sepsis trials versus the ones who are coming in is uh, very difficult. Um, it's a disease predominantly of the older people. Um, and, uh, uh, and so when you're in your 20s and 30s, the incidence is, is relatively low. And then it takes off. And not only does it take off, but your mortality increases with age as well. And so these are the people here who are getting septic. And those are the ones who we often groan about when we get the referral in their 80s of a patient with multiple organ failure because of sepsis. Not surprisingly, their mortality is very high. I just want to labour this point a little bit. Lots of people over the last two days have uh, stood up and talked about their particular area of interest and uh, how des desperately uh, important it is to pay attention to these patients. That We had the st uh, stroke physicians yesterday talking to, us, talking to us about their hospital mortality. If you're uh, all comers who come into hospital with sepsis, a quarter of them won't leave. You'll die in hospital and up to a half. So if you get severe sepsis and get a Mr. an ICU, half of those people won't leave hospital. That's much, much more malignant and much, much more serious than major trauma or acute myocardial infarction or a lot of the other things that we get very excited about. And it won't surprise you that the degree of your organ dysfunction or the degree of your organ failure when you arrive on the ICU plays a big part in uh, how... Uh, your, uh, what your outcome will be. So if you come in with a little bit of hypotension, eight, uh, eight out of ten people will survive that and go home. But if you have hematological failure, respiratory failure, need some inotropes, you're a little bit confused with the septic encephalopathy, and uh, you have um, renal failure, your chances of leaving hospital are vastly diminished. <coughs> but it's not all about whether you live or die. And uh, uh, we know that even if you survive a septic insult, life isn't necessarily fantastic for you either. This study was done, uh, was published at, uh, three years ago now, and it was a cohort study um, uh, which they took data from the US uh, Health and Retirement uh, Study, which is an ongoing thing which has been going for years and years and years, and they looked at a, an eight-year period, and they got consent for people who were filling in these surveys every two years just to really see... Uh, well, really to track uh, population and how populations change. They got consent for them to link their data with Medicare data, and so they were able to identify people who'd been admitted to hospital with sepsis. 
and they identified 623 episodes of sepsis. And, they, and, and then once they'd identified those people, they came up with some uh, complex modelling and they looked back at uh, their survey data and discovered that um, patients, uh, all patients who'd been admitted to hospital with sepsis who were then discharged had a tripling in uh, odds, so tripling, <coughs> three times more likely to have developed a moderate to severe cognitive impairment as diagnosed with things like memory tests and subtracting serial sevens from 100 and that kind of thing. And on top of that, um, people who were admitted to hospital with severe sepsis and then discharged uh, had a median of at least, uh, uh, had at least, sorry, one and a half new functional limitations. So functional limitations in activities of daily living and also in what they call the instrumental activities of daily living. So not just washing and dressing and eating. It was things, slightly more complex tasks like cleaning the bathroom or making a meal. Interestingly, their hospital mortality was, as I suggested, um, uh, 43%, which is up near the top range of uh, the patients I talked about in the slide before. But if you got out of hospital, your chances of living another five years were pretty slim. So of all people admitted to hospital, at five years, 80% of them are going to be dead. And I think we know this about ICU. Yesterday, we heard from the COPD survivors of ICU that they didn't think it was too bad and they'd go back again. But actually, people who have multiple organ dysfunction and multiple organ failure really don't enjoy it very much at all. And it's the young people who actually hate this the most. <coughs> Older people who have uh, uh, new functional limitations tend to get on with it a little bit. But the young people, the polydromas or the young people with soft tissue infections and sepsis because of that, really don't enjoy uh, the, the functional limitations that they have in the re remaining part of their life. So I just wanted to stop at this point and just just uh, reassess the situation that severe sepsis, as um, described by that first group back in 1991, is not that severe. There's many, many people out there on the ward right now with it. And uh, we just see the very, very a small pinnacle of those people in intensive care. It carries a very high mortality and morbidity. And it's difficult to know who should come to ICU. Uh, there aren't any real predictors. A lot of it is the kind of end of the breadogram, getting the history um, and trying to make a decision on that. And our previous practice and uh, colours our opinions, and we know that uh, intensive care physicians are maybe unduly nihilistic, and I think your practice changed with time. There are at attempts to make it more objective, so to try and predict whether people will do well and their frailty scores, frailty indices, etc., um, which can help to predict what people will do. Functional limitations, so how you function before you come to hospital is very important, predominantly because we know that after an episode of severe sepsis, you're never going to even get back to that functional level. And so you, we, you need to be really overt with people and say, uh, you know, even if they survive this, they're not going to get back to being the person that they were before. And uh, I think more and more, the more I see that I do, I realise that it's very difficult at the front door, very difficult to make a prediction about how people are going to do. And perhaps what we should be doing is giving people a kind of trial of treatment, giving them a, 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 and having a look at the response to therapy. Because within 24, 48 hours, you're going to have much more of an idea about how people are likely to be uh, responding. So coming on to management, which is what we all want to know about, how do we deal with these people? Um, and we're guided in this with the Surviving Sepsis Campaign, which is yet another uh, consensus 
uh, document, first produced in 2004 by, I think, about 30 people from 11 organisations. And the 2004 guidelines came up with a whole raft of things that we should do for patients with sepsis to improve their outcome. Very heavily criticised at the time because the uh, guideline was sponsored by Eli Lilly, who were trying to market a drug called Activated Protein C at the time, uh, which is extremely expensive. And uh, one, of, one of the recommendations <coughs> in the 2004 guidelines was that you use activated protein C for patients with severe sepsis. So four years later, in the absence of industry uh, sponsorship, the guidelines were revised and took into account uh, all the new evidence that had come into, into light in those four years. And uh, uh, four years later, uh, to be published uh, this month, so February, in both intensive care medicine and uh, critical care medicine, are the uh, brand new 2012 uh, Surviving Sepsis Campaign Guidelines. This time, 30 organisations, 68 people. Um, and what they do is they all sit around, they have heads of various divisions and um, looking at all the various things that you can do for septic patients. And they, they grade uh, the evidence uh, based on the quality. So where high is a multi-centre, multi uh, low bias, randomised controlled trial, and D, uh, oh, and that's A, and low, very low, is uh, case series uh, or observational studies. And they come up with a strength of recommendation. And a, a strong recommendation is where the group uh, thinks that the desirable effects of recommending a treatment clearly outweigh the undesirable. And a weak recommendation uh, is much uh, more, they're much more ambivalent about it, much less clear, but the general feeling is uh, with these uh, uh, international experts, that it's, uh, uh, it would be a sensible thing to do. So all the um, uh, recommendations within the guidelines uh, have a, uh, a strength and a quality of recommendation next door to it. The introduction to this document uh, says three really important things. First of all, that uh, sepsis is common and increasing. Secondly, uh, which is what Matt has already said, is that sepsis is one of the conditions which is time-dependent. Um, and that we, uh, we shouldn't forget that. And thirdly, and why I think it's really important to talk about uh, severe sepsis uh, in, to acute physicians and to the pre-hospital setting, uh, the pre-ICU setting, is that that's where you can make the greatest gains. Changes in care before people come to ICU is where you make the greatest gains. So uh, one of the other things they do, table one expanded the criteria by which you could uh, define sepsis. So remember I said back in 1991, Sepsis was infection plus two of the SERS criteria, which is tachypnea, tachycardia, a fever or hypothermia, and a raised or decreased white cell count. Now, uh, you can see that you, you are septic if you have infection and some of these. So really, you can be septic if you have infection, you have a bit of a fever and you have an ileus. Or you have infection, you're a little bit confused and a little bit tachypnea. So it's, it, in many ways, it's much more sensitive but I think what this is really telling us is that sepsis presents in, in peculiar ways, and these patients don't often jump out at you as overtly septic. Interestingly, in these guidelines, which weren't there before, they have spoken a little bit about plasma biomarkers and used those to age your diagnosis. And for severe sepsis, again, remember I said that severe sepsis was sepsis plus um, organ dysfunction, be it either hypoperfusion, um, and they've just, they've just um, tried to quantify this, really. So they've spoken about PF ratio, so um, your uh, arterial alveolar oxygenation gradient, uh, whether, you're, whether you've got infection or not, 
uh, if you've got a bit of renal impairment or a bit of liver dysfunction associated with it. And this really, for the individual patient, I mean, it's all very well knowing that they're, they're severely septic or they're just septic. Not that helpful, but it will help when we're trying to recruit people into trials, etc., to try and look at um, outcome data and epidemiology. The new guidelines, so the, the guidelines, the 2008 guidelines, <coughs> divided care of septic patients into two separate bundles. There was the sepsis resuscitation bundle, which was the first six hours, and then the sepsis <coughs> management bundle, which was the first 24 hours, which really encompassed most of the things that we do in ICU. And um, so the, this guideline has abandoned those two bundles, and instead they've split, uh, they've split sepsis up into the different elements themed groups, so antibiotics, glucose control, VT prophylaxis, stress alpha prophylaxis, flow dissipation, <coughs> etc., etc. And they've labelled them A to W. You'll be glad to know that we're not going to go through all 23 of these uh, different elements, because it's only A to E and G which are relevant to uh, pre-ICU. Interestingly, right at the beginning, the, the B element of this uh, alphabet uh, is a recommendation to look for sepsis early and to make sure within your hospitals you have means to improve your performance. So these are them. Uh, a is the initial <coughs> resuscitation previously really called, this is very similar to the resuscitation bundle or elements of it. Uh, B is looking about how we can improve things. We'll come back to this later. And then these other things. Uh, F is um, about uh, infection control on a kind of global or a hospital scale. So I haven't put it in here but we'll talk about fluids after that. So initial resuscitation, you'll see A comes up as you know, identify a septic patient and uh, uh, do something about it, maximise oxygen delivery. And this really came out after the RIVERS study, 2001, early girl-directed therapy in sepsis, shown to improve outcome by maximising oxygen delivery to the tissues because if you don't have hypoxic tissues, your uh, inflammatory cascade gets turned off quicker. And you'll see... Right on the uh, very first line is finding a lactate there as one, as you, uh, as one of your uh, predictors of sepsis. Now, it's not that unfrequent, infrequent, to have patients referred to ICU because they have a high lactate. So this is just going to give me the opportunity to talk a little bit about lactate in critically ill people, only a couple of slides. Lactate physiology, just coming back to in the normal situation, you'll remember that uh, the lactate is produced... Uh, if cells are metabolizing or uh, are active in the absence of oxygen. Um, otherwise, pyruvate gets uh, converted to acetylcoenzyme A and comes into the Krebs cycle to produce ATP and energy that way. If you haven't got oxygen, you can't do that, and so you produce lactate, and you have lactate in under conditions of anaerobic metabolism. Thinking that it's just anaerobic metabolism in sepsis is too simplistic. There's many, many different reasons that lactate is raised, and so targeting just oxygen delivery is not the full answer. Why do we get excited about it? Well, it's, it's an alarm signal. And we know that if you patients who present with a lactate greater than 5 with an acidosis, which is really fairly minor, those patients have a 40% mortality. And these are, this is from something called the lactate study group. We also know that if you don't clear lactate with fluid resuscitation, it is associated with a poor outcome. And that may reflect that those people who are producing their lactate aren't just having difficulties with their oxygen delivery. They're having other reasons for putting their lactate up as well. And it's much more complex than a simple uh, supply-demand imbalance. 
not only does lactate go up when you're uh, um, uh, anaerobically metabolizing, but it's, it's uh, metabolized by the liver, so <coughs> if your uh, liver flow is decreased, uh, you can't metabolize this quickly. Uh, it's produced in skeletal muscle by adrenergic stimulation of beta-2 receptors, and that's why if you give patients a lot of salbutamol, you can see a lot of lactate with that. Endotoxin, so one of these inflammatory triggers, inhibits pyruvate dehydrogenase, uh, which is this enzyme here. And so simply having infection will put your lactate up. And there's lots of patients around who are fluid resuscitated with optimized oxygen delivery who, who still have a lactate. Okay, so coming back to the surviving sepsis campaign, uh, we've spoken about the resuscitation and the goals for that. Uh, the diagnosis, easy, uh, take some blood cultures before you give antibiotics. Uh, there's a, a 1C uh, recommendation for this. And for antibiotics, give them, and give them nice and early. Within the first hour, 1B, this is one of the highest recommendations that they have. And that's the goal of therapy. It's not a standard of care because it's recognized that it's quite difficult to do. These guidelines really put a nail in the coffin as far as crystalloid, as far as colloids are concerned in sepsis. Most of the, and they actually so, go so far as to say don't use starch. And this is based on a number of massive studies, most recently in the New England Journal, uh, I think in December, which showed that giving starch uh, is not beneficial and in fact is probably quite harmful. And I think probably will be extrapolatable out to gelatins as well. So what they say is give crystalloid. And later on, you can give a bit of albumin after you've given plenty, plenty of crystalloid. So what they've tried to do is they've recognised there's lots of little, little different things all in the, in the initial uh, kind of pre-hospital, pre-ICU care. So they've tried to put it all into a bundle, and a bundle of uh, interventions is a set of interventions which, when all done together, will improve the management and improve the outcome. And I would suggest that these first three hours... <coughs> Simple things to do are all things that you can do before your patient get, uh, comes to ICU. And the things after that we should be doing on the unit. They don't talk about the goal-directed therapy here. They just talk about give fluid, which is pretty simple. Do we achieve it? Well, no, we don't really. Um, as you've seen this slide already, every hour that you don't give antibiotics, your mortality goes up by about 8%. If you give antibiotics in the first hour after onset of hypertension, your chances of surviving are pretty high. And this is the strongest single predictor of outcome. But we know that only 50% of patients get it with even, even in the first six hours. And an audit I did when I was training in Exeter showed that oh, their median time to antibiotics in patients with severe sepsis was three and a half hours. So that was after this data was, had been out for quite a long time. So why? Why is this a problem? Well, it's confusing. We all get confused from time to time. Your average patient isn't always your average patient. <coughs> Patients who are warm and vasodilated aren't that typical. Much more typical is a patient who's got cardiovascular disease, who's under, who's got poor cardiac output, or the patient who's been vomiting with their sepsis who's very underfilled. So all of us are bad at recognizing sepsis. And as Matt was alluding to earlier, you get better with that the more septic patients that you see, but some will still slip through the net. And I think there really is a failure to appreciate severity and, and that's one of the points of um, coming to talk at this kind of thing is to is trying to make people realize that actually this is a very, very serious condition. There's, there are challenges, not, clinic, not just clinically and whether we recognize it or not, but also in the process. Uh, again, it's a time-critical uh, time thing. This is uh, uh, a, a set, you can't really see it, but it says code sepsis up here. 
And in the states where they have a lot of early girl directed therapy, they they carry these bloops and they they go off, got patient name on there, uh, where where the the septic patient is, and you'll go rushing off. Here's your septic cart, your sepsis cart. It's all got marvelous things in it, but really all you really need is a bag of fluid, some oxygen, and some antibiotics, and the telephone number for the intensive care unit. We're not brilliant in the way we do things. We quite often give people antibiotics that they've already had a course of before they've had uh, from their GP. And we need to just think a little bit about that and about the appropriateness of the things we do. These patients don't have much room for manoeuvre. These patients need broad-spectrum antibiotics, which we will then de-escalate later on. Don't worry about global uh, problems with uh, bacterial resistance. And there's a problem with the medical hierarchy, isn't there? patient gets sick, they uh, activate their... Um, uh, early warning score, F1 gets called, F1 doesn't test, calls SHO, SH comes along, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Registrar comes, phones ICU, registrar, registrar, ICU, registrar, takes history, goes to these patients. It takes hours and hours and hours and hours, and we just don't have that. So we need to deal with this, and we need to understand that for, for these patients, we need to do what's best for them. In, in this, this all was all something called the MUST protocol, which was all about um, the multiple urgent sepsis therapies, and that reduced mortality in hospitals that they were doing it. So how can we approve? Well, education and the surviving sepsis campaign says that education is extremely important. Care pathways based on <clears throat> sepsis resuscitation bundle, so that very simple bundle that I put up to start off with. There's only four things you need to do. And if you do those things, and you can go back and audit them and look at our performance improvement and use those as goals of care. And screening for septic patients to the ward. And I want to just talk a little bit about this because Matt says that you can turn up and you know exactly what's going on if you've, had it, if you've seen a lot of these patients beforehand. Uh, I disagree with that slightly, and people who know me will know that it's unusual for me to disagree. But um, uh, there is an element of reducing the cognitive workload and using, uh, uh, using checklists. And one of the things that they suggest in the surviving sepsis um, guidelines is to have a, a kind of screening tool and a checklist to see whether some of these patients who are just not getting better on your ward or who are sitting there and you can't really work out what's going on, to whether they really are infected or not. Maybe, maybe you're missing sepsis when you think it's simple heart failure. And I, I think it's rather like the British cycling team in the velodrome uh, when they were asked why were they so good. The guy said it, it's nothing, not one single intervention, it's a little tiny improvement at every single step which brings the largest improvement overall. So checklists, I'm a big fan of checklists. We have a checklist on the ICU. Every single patient we see every day, you have to fill in a checklist. But it helps me remember the things that uh, I would otherwise forget in the glamorous and exciting uh, part of place that is ICU. Uh, there's some other things. Uh, uh, operative. Uh, the campaign discusses operative uh, problems in the drug delivery chain, whether we need premixed antibiotics. It's really it's taking ages to check the antibiotics, etc. Uh, continuous quality improvement data collection feedback loops against what those goals that they've told us about. And, and I say this with a slightly heavy heart, uh, maybe uh, automatic referral to ICU if certain triggers are met. But importantly, I think cultural change and changing the way we do things and approaching things from a different angle. Thank you.